0: I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. we're and the, we sirens. the sirens. Today we're talking about The Court Jester, which is a 1956 musical comedy spoof medieval swashbuckling film starring Danny Kaye, Glenis Johns, Basil Rathbone, Angela Lansbury, and Cecil Parker. The movie was co-written, co-directed, and co-produced by Melvin Frank and Norman Panama, Uh, And it was released by Paramount Pictures. Danny Kaye received a Golden Globe nomination for Best Motion Picture Actor, but the movie at the time of its release was actually a huge flop and lost a lot of money. Yeah. I didn't know that. (laughs) Yes. It was also an enormous challenge for the uh, arranger and composer Vic Schoen, who was did most of the musical score for the film because it was his first feature film and he, like, had no training on it. But also some of the songs were written by Danny Kaye's wife, Sylvia Fine, who was an accomplished composer and producer in her own right. Um, yeah. And... I did read that, like,
1: because he didn't know what he was doing, that he broke a lot of rules
0: and actually did good creative things with the songs. Oh, And actually, I was listening right before we started recording. I was listening to the soundtrack to this movie that is on Spotify. And it actually has a lot more songs than are in the movie. So I didn't have a chance to see if they appeared somewhere else. But Danny Kaye recorded a lot of songs that are not actually completely in the movie. So the film follows a resistance movement in a medieval country where probably England, where the royal family has been deposed and murdered by Roderick, who becomes the king. There are rumors that an infant uh, has survived the massacre and that this infant bears the purple pimpernel, which is um, the um, traditional family birthmark for the royal family. Um, and in fact, he is—he did survive and he's being protected in the woods by a band of resistance fighters led by the elusive Black Fox and his captain, Maid Jean, uh, who's played by G- Glennis Jones. Um, and the troops are entertained by Hubert Hawkins, who is played by Danny Kay, And he used to be in a carnival, and he has some uh, friends who he's brought along from the carnival who are ultimately rejected, but he they come back and save the day at the end of the movie. Spoiler alert. The huh. rebel band is infiltrated by the King's Men, and Hawkins and Jean are instructed to carry the baby to safety, but they end up moving to plan B when Giacomo, the jester on the way to the court, shows up at their safe house seeking shelter for the night. Jean sees this as an opportunity to get inside the castle and get the keys to the secret passage so that that the black fox and the rest of the resistance can get into the um, castle. And so she orders... So she takes down Giacomo by, like, knocking him out and orders Hawkins to impersonate the jester to complete this counter infiltration into the the castle. The mission, however, doesn't turn out to be um, as straightforward as they thought it would be. There's a princess, a witch, an arranged marriage, murders for hire, a super quick knighting ceremony, and jousting... (laughs) Some tongue twisting dialogue and more twists and turns in this plot than than I could like keep track of in in my notes and and of course in just this brief summary and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about them in depth as we go. So,
1: yeah, I'm impressed that you even distilled the plot down that. Way.
0: <laughs> you know, there are a lot of places in my notes where I was like, "Oh, oh right, that happens." <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs>
1: Because I went into this movie not knowing anything about it, and but having certain expectations about what sort of like a period drama from that time oh. would be, and it was nothing like that <laughs> I thought it yeah, would be. Yeah, this is not
0: like a period drama
1: for <laughs> better. No, and I was works. like, oh, I have to really pay attention to what's going on.
0: <laughs> I mean, have to is sort of you kind of know like by the kind of movie that it is that. It's going to turn out oh, okay in the end. Do you have any trivia?
1: I do have a little bit. So you mentioned that there were songs on the soundtrack that don't appear in the movie. Mm-hmm. And one of them was called I Live to Love. Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to be sung by Danny Kaye to Angela Lansbury's princess character when he swings into her bedroom. Oh, sure. And there was also an extended past the basket number. Yes. When, um... Danny Kaye is before The King, but he has the baby in the basket, and he's trying to get rid of it. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't know it was on Spotify, so that's great. I'm going to go check that out. Yeah. Um, But for anyone else who wanted more songs than this, which, by the way, Hillary, thank you for picking another musical, because that delighted me. I thought this was interesting. The producers made Danny Kaye wear leg falsies because they thought his legs were not shapely enough. Because <laughs> he's wearing tights, tights the in whole a lot time, of the scenes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and uh, I guess he didn't. met his calves were not what they wanted them to be. So, <laughs> I think that's pretty hilarious that they even make like fake, like, muscles to wear.
0: Isn't that a thing, though? I, this is showing my total ignorance about actual medieval history, but wasn't there a period of time where there that actually existed, that, like, fancy men in the courts actually did wear, like, cal- calf falsies to, like, highlight their calf muscles that they did or did not have?
1: Oh, I mean, I don't know, but it sounds plausible based on the crazy things people do to yeah. meet certain beauty standards. Yeah. And I guess if you were wearing tights a lot, then the legs are the thing. Yeah. So <laughs> um It made me think of like all the prosthetics that the uh female actresses that we have talked about have had to wear. But this <laughs> is the I think it's the first time we've mentioned a male actor having to wear something like that. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, So is it Basil or Basil Rathbone?
0: Uh, I think Basil, but I mean, it's spelled exactly like the herb. I think that's just the way that the English pronounce Basil. Okay. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, the cast was really good in this movie, and I liked... Basil Rathbone in in the villain role. Mm -hmm. Um, He is an actual, or was an actual, world-class fencer. (laughs) Um, I read that it was only through his prowess that he avoided injury because Danny Kaye didn't really know what he was doing. It was just, like, thrusting a sword around (laughs) and almost, like, got him a couple times. Oh my god. Um, And also, this is the last movie that features Basil Rathbone sword fighting on film because he was actually older i think he was like around 65 yeah when this movie happened so he was getting so he was not in sword fighting ability anymore right at some point you gotta um, hang up your sword yes the song life could not better be mm-hmm. uh was later used as the theme song of danny Kay's tv variety show which oh. premiered in 1963 and so you know the scene where they're doing all the like Intricate marching at fast speed. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. When Danny Kaye's being knighted. Um, That was actually the Jackson, Michigan Zwab Drill Team, which was a U.S. Civil War reenactment group (laughs) that was doing that. Oh, my God. Yes, and they were used to like marching with Civil War era weaponry, and they had to update it for this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Danny Kay's daughter, Dina Kay said that for the rest of her father's life, when people recognized him in public, they would walk up and spout the entire brew that is true speech. So that was, like, I guess one of the things he was the most famous for. Yeah, that's funny. So, but, I mean, those are the the juiciest pieces of trivia that I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, should I tell you a little bit about Glynis Johns? Yes, please do,
1: because I... I kept thinking she looked familiar, and then I was like, I don't know if I know her. And then I briefly saw that she was the mother in Mary Poppins, Uh, and then
0: I, I like, couldn't unsee it. So, yes, tell me about her. Yeah, yeah, so she is best known for that role in Mary Poppins. She plays Winifred Banks, the mother, in Mary Poppins. Um, She also originated a role in A Little Night Music. Where um, she sang the song "Send in the Clowns," which was composed by Stephen Sondheim, and she oh, and the song "Sister Suffragette" um, in Mary Poppins was also written specifically for her. Um, She's known for those things, and the like. Most notable thing about her quality wise is is her husky voice, which has sort of stayed with her throughout her career. Even up until when she was in the movie While You Were Sleeping, as this old woman, she still has that same voice. But she was born in Pretoria, South Africa, she, the daughter of Alice Maud Steele and Mervyn Johns, who happened to be in South Africa. Um, they were British, but they were in South Africa performing. And um, she went on to, they went back to England and she went to school in Bristol and made her first stage appearance as a child ballerina um, at the Garrick Theater in 1935. She went on, eventually, to become a qualified ballet teacher, so she was you know, trained very extensively as a dancer. It was when she was dancing in a children's play during uh, the Christmas holidays that she, that she was cast in her first notable stage production um, in 1936, um, and then in a subsequent year she was in the stage production of uh, The Children's Hour and The Melody That Got Lost. And then she made her screen debut in 1938 in the film version of a novel called South Riding. And then she had a series of smaller roles in the rest of the 1930s. And then... In 1945, she got really good reviews for her performance as Deborah Carr's best friend in the movie Perfect Strangers, which came out in 1945, and then she sort of moved from there into a series of supporting roles in the 1940s, um, and then became a star um, after her performance in the movie Miranda, in which she played a mermaid... (laughs) So (laughs) that wreaks havoc in a London household, as I guess you would if you were a mermaid in London. So she became a household name after that movie and went on over the next few years to be sort of play love interests and leading ladies in sort of lighthearted movies and was in a couple of swashbuckling Disney movies The Sword and the Rose, and Rob Roy, the Highland Rogue. And then she had a starring role in the movie The Weak and the Wicked about a woman in prison. That was Hmm. a big hit, but it seems like that would go a little bit against type. And then she worked a lot with the director Ken Anakin over the course of about a dozen years. And she then was um, had top billing in a comedy called Josephine and Men in 1945. And then The Court Jester came out in 1956. And then she was one of many stars who had a cameo in the movie Around the World in 80 Days in 1956. You know, she continued acting in films, films but in 1963, she was in the United States for several years and appeared in a television show called Glennis in which she played a mystery writer. But that was a very short-lived TV show, and she went back to England. And then Mary Poppins came out in 1964. And then she was in a film called Dear Bridget in 1965 with James Stewart. So she sort of, like, she was in a lot of different movies with a lot of diff- like famous faces that we know. But, like, starting in the late 60s, she... Um, She was in a lot of character roles um, and moved to work increasingly on the stage. So she sort of left her film career and just did a lot of theater, including a little night music, for which she won a Tony Award. She did in the 1970s um, return to film, you know, and did a couple, a a few more films in the 1970s, but um, continued to work very steadily on the stage. The first season of the NBC sitcom Cheers, she guest starred as Diane Chambers' mother, and then she she also appeared in the sitcom Coming of Age, which I guess is a little bit less famous. And then she played the grandmother in the Sandra Bullock film uh, While You Were Sleeping in 1995, which is one of my family's like beloved holiday movies. But then her last film appearance. Um, was in was as Molly Shannon's grandmother in the 1999 movie Superstar. She's still alive. She's 94 years old. <laughs> she, um, she was married four times, um, and her only child um, passed away in 2007. But she's still kicking.
1: It's interesting because I bioed Angela Lansbury, and I feel like there's a lot of connections yeah. between them. They both have Disney connections, mm-hmm. but they're famous for... Uh, they both starred as mystery writers on television shows. Oh my gosh, yes! Both big Broadway stars and musicals. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's it's kind of nice to do some bioing of people who are still alive. Also, yeah, I
0: feel like that rarely—that's rarely happened for us.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess we have been favoring the earlier movies. Also, yeah, um, right. It's, <laughs> it's
0: hard to be alive when you're born <laughs> in
1: 1895. <laughs> exactly um Um, well tell me about Angela Lansbury so Angela Lansbury is near and dear to my heart for many reasons and so I did not know she would be in this movie and I I think it's the first time I've seen her in anything like as a younger actress oh we have
0: to watch the movie Gaslight then yes because I've only seen Gaslight on stage I've never seen the movie well it's a movie for our time (laughs) that's where the phrase gaslighting comes from and i think that was well she was very young in that movie i don't know if it was her first movie you can maybe you know (laughs) yeah
1: she was born on october 16th 1925 to an upper middle class family in regent's park central london uh her mother was the irish actress moina mcgill and her father was the english politician edgar lansbury And her paternal grandfather was the British Labour Party leader, George Lansbury. And uh, so she, you know, she really had decent connections from birth. Uh, To escape the Blitz in 1940, she moved to the United States with her mother and two brothers. And she studied acting in New York City. Uh, Proceeding to Hollywood in 1942, she signed with MGM and obtained her first film role in Gaslight, 1944.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we should watch Gaslight. It's been a while since we've seen an Ingrid Burden movie. Yes.
1: Too long. Too long. (laughs) So she was in Gaslight in 1944 and The Picture of Dorian Gray in 1945, and she got... Oscar nominations, and a Golden Globe Award. So that was for her first two movies.
0: (laughs) It's it's been all downhill since then. In
1: 1949, she married actor Peter Shaw, and they remained together for 54 years until his death in 2003. And she acquired a stepson, David, from his first marriage, and they had two children of their own, Anthony and Deidre. So, Lansbury appeared in 11 more films for MGM, mostly in supporting roles, and after her contract ended with them in 1952, she began doing theatrical appearances. Um, And she was basically considered a B-list star (laughs) during this period. So, like, I was surprised by that, because she had those big awards, but um, the change was when she appeared in the film The Manchurian Candidate, which had huge acclaim and it's generally considered her best performance. And after that, you know, she had the accolades and she could kind of do what she wanted. Um, so she gained stardom on Broadway for playing the lead role in the musical Mame in 1966. Oh, I forgot about that. A ton of awards and she became a gay icon. (laughs) Um, I knew I liked her. So I know I have, The soundtrack version of Mame with her as the lead role, and it is, she's amazing. She's just amazing. In 1970, her family had a really traumatic year. Her husband underwent a hip replacement. Her son, Anthony, suffered a heroin overdose and entered a coma. Oof. And then, in addition, the family's Malibu home was destroyed in a brush fire. She's From what I read, she and her husband never really fitted in in the Hollywood scene. They weren't interested in it. Mm -hmm. She was sort of, like, like, quote-unquote, too British for it. Like, she wasn't a partier. She Mm -hmm. liked to stay home. Like, she cared a lot about her family. So I don't think she was sad to leave California. And the family moved to County Cork, Ireland. And there their son worked on recovering from addiction. And he... You know, eventually did and entered the industry. Lansbury continued with a variety of theater and film appearances throughout that decade, and they included leading roles in the stage musicals *Gypsy*, *Sweeney Todd*, and *The King and I*, as well as in the Disney film *Bedknobs and Broomsticks*. Yes, which I, I kind of didn't remember that she was in, but then now then it's all coming back to me. In television she achieved worldwide fame as fictional writer and sleuth Jessica Fletcher yes. in the American Who Done It series Murder She Wrote, which ran for twelve seasons from nineteen eighty four until nineteen ninety-six and was one of the longest running and most popular detective dramas in television history. Yes. And I was a huge fan of that show, probably unsurprising to, <laughs> <laughs> to <Yeah>. everyone. <laughs> when i was off from the school in the summer i would do the double whammy of like lifetime television of unsolved mysteries and murder she wrote <laughs> and
0: it's a, I still it's consider, a, it's, a, it's a wonder that you didn't become a mystery writer i know i mean there's still time really That's true. So.
1: <laughs> but I, I, I also think she was kind of a fashion icon for that role Oh. Like Jessica Fletcher, I mean may, that might also just be my personal. <laughs> name, but she had a very distinctive can, style in that role. Yeah,
0: she can be our personal fashion icon. <laughs> yes, um, she. So through Corey
1: Moore Productions, which was a company that she co-owned with her husband, she assumed ownership of the Murder She Wrote series and was its executive producer for the final four
0: seasons. So what you're saying is that she's a badass.
1: Yes, what I'm saying is that she's a boss lady. <laughs> uh, she also moved into voice work during this period and contributed to animating, uh, animated films like Disney's Beauty and the Beast yeah. from 1991. Um, and since then, she's continued to tour in theater productions and make occasional film appearances. And I think... Most recently, she was in um, the new masterpiece, Little Women, as Aunt March, which was great. She was
0: really great. Oh, I mean, I, I have been meaning to watch that, so now I guess I, I have to.
1: Yes. This is your excuse. Okay. She received an honorary Oscar, and she won five Tony Awards, six Golden Globes, and an Olivier Award. Ooh. Uh, She's been nominated for other industry awards, including the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress on three occasions and various primetime Emmy Awards on 18 occasions. And in 2014, she was made a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II, and she yet lives.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yay, two people from this movie who are still alive yes and two like pretty awesome ladies yeah totally badass on screen and and in real life yes
1: um and i feel like we should say that we are not ignoring danny k we just know that we're bioing him in an upcoming episode so don't worry don't add us <laughs> danny k will get his yes due.
0: he's getting his due we are not gonna we won't yeah we won't neglect him mm-hmm. we'll talk about him plenty um, so,
1: should we get into it? Because I know, this is a movie you picked, and I know you have a history with it. Yes. So. Yeah. What's that about? So,
0: okay. So, when I was probably 14, or hopefully not 15, let's say in my adolescence, we had in our basement this, like, totally hip, like, entertainment system where there was, like, a tape deck that was hooked up with the like stereo system for the tv and the vcr and so i would do this thing where i would record onto cassette tapes parts of like the movies that i loved no i was probably older because i think i was probably 15 because at some point i so i would make tapes of these of you know casablanca court jester i can't remember what else you know other I think eventually Cactus Flower, it was mostly, oh, and um, Nanochka I had this tape of, like, various movie clips that I then would, like, play in the car when I was driving around when I was, like, 16, I think probably even before I was, like, technically allowed to be listening to music while I was driving. Sorry, Dad, who was listening to this.
1: Um, it was old movie clips, so it was not cool. I have to tell you, this is, like, the nerdiest thing that I have
0: ever learned about you, and, like, there's competition. Yeah, I mean, you know some nerdy things about me. So, I have portions of this movie still memorized because of that. The opening number, it was on there. Um, Life Couldn't Possibly Better Be, the whole Palace from the Chalice um, exchange is on there. Like... It there was a moment when this when we we were getting to that scene that I recognized what was coming based on where I had started recording it, um, which was right before Glennis John takes a breath, and so I knew what was coming because I recognized her breath. <laughs> oh my gosh! So. I, there are portions of this movie that I have memorized, still.
1: Wait, I have to ask you, can you today
0: say the, uh, chalice with the palace? I can't do the whole thing anymore, but, you know, I, the pellet with the poisons and the, and the chalice from the palace and the, no, I can't do it anymore, apparently. Um, (laughs) maybe I'll, it'll come back to me as we're talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the pellet with the poisons and the vessel with the pestle and the chalice from the palace has the breathing is true there you go oh that was good <laughs> but you don't want the pal- palace from the chalice from the palace <laughs> yeah
1: but but don't i don't they change it yeah they change I'm it because, because, because the chalice from was? the
0: palace was broken so then he want then there's the cha- the flagon with the dragon that has the pellet with the poison I think. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) So that is how I spent my time when I was 15. Or 16. Um, You know what? That is, like, time well spent compared to what
1: a lot of 16-year-olds are doing. I mean, yes.
0: I mean, I think, you know, at some point, like, I fell in love with old movies from watching um, Hans Christian Andersen, which is um, another movie that stars Danny Kaye. So Danny Kaye was the first, like, old movie actor that I realized... Wasn't alive anymore, and like Danny Kay was the way that my dad taught me about like old movies, and and so we had to like make our way through the, the Danny Kay cam and, and eventually got to Court Jester, where I stayed so, <laughs> until I watched Skokie many years later, which is a very different Danny Kay movie. But so yeah, so that's that's the basic history of Hillary's nerddom.
1: I have I have respect for that nerddom. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I came to this movie with no knowledge of it, really. Like, I've seen Danny Kaye in other things and liked him in other things, mm-hmm. and I liked him in this, so I'm glad you made me watch it, because normally I would be like, oh, medieval drama, no way, but but, it's, but <laughs> clearly but that's not what this was. Right,
0: but it's a musical, and it's ridiculous, <laughs> so.
1: Does anyone else sing in this movie besides Danny Kay?
0: No. I mean I think at the uh, the clothes I mean the 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 little people do, but they are also carnival performers or that's who their characters are. And then I think in the very end everybody joins in with the the reprise of Life Could Not Better Be but you know it's hard to tell if they're actually singing or if they're just mouthing the words because it's the like chorus yeah. at the end of the movie. Well, it seems like such
1: a waste because you have these amazing singers in the cast right. and none of them sing except Danny Kaye. I mean, Danny Kaye's a great singer too, but like hey,
0: how about having Angela Lansbury do like a duet with him? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and and then Glennis Jones is there too. I've never thought about that, but there are like plenty of <laughs> there are plenty of other singers who could be singing in this movie. Um, so,
1: where I think my general reaction to it was, like, and I'm sorry to say this, because it might pain you, but, like, this was good, and I enjoyed certain parts of
0: it, but I don't know if it was for me. It's, well, it's a terrible movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was, te- I mean, it was very, a lot of the scenes were very clever. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways. I don't know. There was just something that was like, I don't know if I... It's not one that I would have chosen, but I'm glad I watched it. Sure.
0: So the movie starts in the forest, because that's where the resistance rebels are hiding out, planning their attack. Yes. And we we eventually get to the castle, where the king is, and Angela Lansbury is the princess. And she has her, like, handmaiden as a witch... Because, of course, mm-hmm. and he's, the king is about to marry her off to Griswold, who's from the north, I guess. But he's, like, uh, yeah. trying to, like, form an alliance so that he can then um, uh, get the, he, like, he he has to go fight the black fox in the woods. And Griswold is going to help him do that. And Danny Kaye's character is this, like, bumbling, like, sweet and tender Entertainer, who's like his main role when he's not like singing, is to take care of the baby, and then yeah, the um, the like woman who's in yeah the woman who's in charge of the resistance movement when the black fox is like off scouting or whatever is the maid Jean, um, who's played by Guinness Johns, and so we have her who's a really strong female character, and I don't I don't know if we can say that the princess is a strong female character. Because she's mostly interested in getting married and marrying someone that she loves. But she keeps threatening that if her dad makes her do things, she's going to throw herself in the highest tower. Which seems like... That seems like a credible threat, actually. (laughs)
1: Well, I have to say that one thing that I noticed about this movie was that all of the women characters had a lot of agency. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's super obvious with me. I loved the gender reversals in this. I think that was probably my favorite thing about this movie. Yeah. And, like, obviously Mae Jean is, like, the captain of of the Resistance, and, like, she has agency. But also, I thought the fact that the princess basically says no to her dad Mm -hmm. and, like, asserts her own will was significant. And then also her attendant, the witch is also making things happen behind the scenes and, like, manipulating people. So all of them are doing things that contribute to the plot mm-hmm. and, like, affecting other characters. Yeah. Which might not seem like a lot, but for, like, movies
0: from this time, that is a lot. Mm-hmm. Right, that they actually are part of... There's a lot that happens in the plot, and they are very intrinsically, like, connected to it. Even when, like, there's a part where... Jean is basically kidnapped by the king's men and is then chosen to be the king's handmaiden. And she uses that to get the key to the secret passage. And then when he's, like, basically about to, like, sexually assault her, she makes up the story about how, um, you know, her father had this, like, horrible disease and everyone in her family died of this horrible disease and, like their family is famous for carrying this horrible disease so much so that they named it after her family. And, which (laughs) I I love. It's like, oh, a little, uh, a little medical knowledge to, like, fend off the predatory king. It's lovely. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I was like, is this STD humor?
0: (laughs) In In a movie from the 1950s? (laughs) Yes, it is.
1: Um, uh, yeah, she was great, but the one thing that annoyed me was that in the very end of the movie, everyone acts like Danny Kay was the hero, mm-hmm. but really, she's the hero. She mm-hmm. is the one who accomplishes everything. Yeah. But they act like he is the, I mean, he's, he does some stuff, but he's also just bumbling around a lot, and she's fixing everything and making everything
0: happen. Right. Yeah, and he a couple of times, like, refers to her as, like, a little girl, and, like, you know, how can, you know, such a little girl have so much responsibility, which I had forgotten about, and I was sort of rolling my eyes as I was watching the movie. She sort of transcends all of their expectations, I guess, and, like, but also manages to, like, be both the leader of the resistance and also, like, definitely feminine and a woman and like not afraid mm-hmm. to like say yes I'm in love with you Hawkins but we have to do our duty for the um for the true king of England this tiny baby and I love too that the Fox you know in the beginning of the movie when Hawkins is holding the baby and he feels uncomfortable about like bearing the baby's butt to all these new recruits, and Hawkins is like, shouldn't a woman be doing that? And the Black Fox is basically like, the only other woman around, like, the only woman around here is Mae Jean, and, like, she's too valuable. <laughs> she has other skills. Yeah. Like, sh- <laughs> shut up and keep mooning people with the baby.
1: I thought it was interesting in that scene where they're in the shack together mm-hmm. that they, I mean, in, in this age where we're talking about toxic masculinity a lot, mm-hmm. I mean, he basically just puts it out there and it's like, could you... Possibly love a guy who was like sensitive, like me, and not traditionally masculine, and doesn't know how to fight. Yeah, and she is like, yes, that appeals to me. I I am attracted to that. Yeah, and I just, I mean, I know that it's kind of like play for laughs in this movie, but it was nice to see.
0: Yeah, although in that scene, it wasn't it wasn't so much played for laughs because he's like he has to put the baby to sleep, and he's the one who's like singing the lullaby. And yeah. as we said, you know, G- Glennis Johns can sing, so like they could have very easily been like, "Oh, Glenis Johns is going to take this song." <laughs> you know, they made a like conscious, conscious choice, partly because Danny Kay was there and he can sing, but you know, to to have him put the baby to sleep, and then be like, hey, I'm in love with you. And I love in that scene, too, that, like, it starts raining, and they're gonna get rained on, and she's like, no, we can both sleep underneath the, you know, the covering that I've, like, rigged up. If you get wet and you don't sleep, you'll be of no service to the king. Um, I like how utilitarian (laughs) it is. She's a very complex character. She is, and in a way, like, I wish that she
1: had not been such a straight man, Mm -hmm. because I feel like she could have she doesn't really get a lot of funny lines mm-hmm. and she's more just like keeping her face neutral and taking care of business right <laughs> but i wanted to be like you could take care of business and also get the last <laughs> <Yeah>. hey, jean <laughs> jean
0: yeah that's when Breckinridge's scourge comes in oh yeah that's true um, so what did you think Jeez. about the all of the different, like, comedy bits in this movie? I feel like there were a lot of bits that were in various scenes that either have become, like, classic since this movie or, or are, like, just, like, classic bits of comedy. Like, Danny Kaye, at some point, is, when he's first impersonating the jester, he, you know, the guards or whatever are surprised that he speaks to the king's English so well. And so he, you know, launches into French and Italian and German, but they're, like, obviously, like, nonsense versions of those. Yeah. (laughs) Which I feel like is a, like, a pretty classic joke to, you know, be, like, the nonsense versions. Like, we all can recognize that, oh, yes, that's, like, that sounds angry, so that's German. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was, like, um, one of the early
1: ones we, one of the early movies we watched with Charlie Chaplin, Speaking fake German. Oh, right,
0: yeah, I forgot about that.
1: Which was like so ridiculous. I thought that was really funny. I mean, I'm of two minds about it because some of it was absurd to the point of kind of being annoying to me, mm-hmm. with the comedy, mm-hmm. and some of it really hit home. So I was like intermittently laughing out loud and being annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> but I really liked all the wordplay stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot and the
0: flagon with the dragon.
1: <laughs> I thought that was great. I liked some of the physical comedy. I, I really liked that marching scene, actually, mm-hmm. where he just is like being caught up in it and acting ridiculous. And then some of the stuff with him being hypnotized and the snapping the fingers. I thought was really funny too.
0: Yeah, yeah. When he's hypnotized by the witch. So I thought like some of it really worked.
1: I I I mean, he's clearly a gifted comedian. <laughs> and, <laughs> I like seeing him dance. I like when he does, like, comedy slash dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so He's, like, prancing around. Yeah. He he was just... He was really great. Like, he carried... I mean, there were so many great actors in this movie, and he is clearly the star. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I wrote a note about his... You mentioned his, like, his sword fighting with... Basil Rathbone's character, Rathbone's character, Ravenhurst, who's the, like, evil mm-hmm. uh, advisor to the king who wants to kill all the other advisors and, like, succeeds in killing all the advisors. Or he doesn't succeed, the, the witch succeeds in killing all of them. Like, the combination of the duel between the jester and Ravenhurst and the, like, then combining that with the whole snapping thing where the witch has hypnotized him so that he will be the princess's lover because you know she needs to f- make sure that that the princess doesn't end up marrying Griswold so he, she hypnotizes the jester to be be the princess's lover but like and brings him in and out of it by snapping and then the snapping gets rolled into this like drawn long drawn out duel with Ravenhurst and so like, Ravenhurst, like, snaps periodically to, like, emphasize a point he's trying to make as he's, as they're dueling. And so there are moments when they're dueling, like, sword fighting in a, like, very obvious stagecraft to it. And is it looks like they both know what they're doing. And then he snaps and Danny Kaye just starts, like waving the sword around like totally like (laughs) foolishly and in a way that you're like how is he not dead already but it just sort of like that scene in particular i was watching it this time and going like oh my god he like is such like the two of them are such good like actors and have such like amazing skill to be able to go from this like pretending to be sword fighting pretending to be like have no idea what they're doing in like within the like the time it takes to like snap your fingers
1: yeah i thought that was amazing that whole scene was great i i also thought it was really funny just in the beginning when he's hypnotized and he goes to the princess Mm -hmm. he's like this exaggerated version of what like you would think a like prince or ardent lover would be Mm -hmm. going to a woman and it's just so ridiculous it's like he's never met her yeah He just showed up at the castle, and then, like, all of a sudden he's swooping through her window and, like, declaring his love for her, Mm -hmm.
0: and, like, he literally does not know this person. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He's never laid eyes on her. But it, like, sort of highlights the, like, absurdity of the, like, arranged marriage with Griswold from the North or wherever he's from. Yeah. You could see why she
1: would want something different, Mm -hmm. but I thought it was funny that the person who she ends up falling for... his role in the court is that he is a jester. Yeah. Because I was like, that's not really a romantic hero, but I don't know. It seems like she's fine with it in the movie. Right. She doesn't care. She just
0: wants someone to romance her. Yeah.
1: Question. How did you feel about the use of little people in the movie for laughs? I
0: mean, it made me uncomfortable. Although, it made me uncomfortable, but what I appreciated was that Danny Kaye's character was like, look, these people are... You know they're my friends and I worked with them and they're like they're great and they you know they care about the king, and the fox who's like the who's supposed to be the the hero the the leader, of the resistance is like oh no you know they're they're little we can't feed them they're unlike not powerful they can't fight and he's really dismissive of them and they're like okay well sorry you and then it turns out then that they like save the day of course because there's. The, like, rock slide or whatever, and normal, quote-unquote normal-sized adults can't get through. But the little people can, so he has to go and, like, get them. Maybe slightly less un- uncomfortable, but on the other hand, it, like... Especially since their voices are clearly, like, manipulated so that they have higher voices yeah. and they sound like children. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're adults.
1: <laughs> I thought the weirdest part was that whole construction where... They were like laying on their backs and passing people up the line yeah. with their feet, mm-hmm. and I was like, "What? What is happening right <laughs> now in this movie?"
0: Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, that was like so yeah. ridiculous because, like, like are the the people that they're like passing around on their feet are they unconscious? And how did they get to be unconscious? Yeah, yeah. It,
1: I mean, I could see your point that it, they were saying like, "Oh, these people." Can come in and save the day, but it was so clearly meant to be ridiculous. Yeah, And, totally. like, Danny Kay was supposed to be, like, the de facto leader mm-hmm. of this little person army, and isn't that hilarious? Yeah.
0: That
1: That was the only part of this movie that made me very uncomfortable, because, like, there was, like, the rounding up of the women. Mm-hmm. Thing was weird, but I think you were supposed to think that was bad in this movie.
0: Yeah, you're supposed to think, oh yes, of course, it's the you know the 14th century or whatever year it is, and so of course they have to like treat the women badly because of course they didn't treat treat the women badly in the 20th century. <sighs> No, not at all.
1: <laughs> all those problems are fixed. We're done. Oh, I wanted to say about the the baby because of my particular time of life and life situation right now, I had a ton of like anxiety about the baby and like being how s- the baby was being taken yeah. care of. Being
0: swung around in a basket and being hidden yeah. in a basket in a wine, yeah, totally. It was in like a
1: wine cask and that whole time I was like, "All right, Who's feeding this baby? What are they feeding this baby? Who's changing the baby? The baby looks cold. Like, what
0: is Yeah, there. you have to, like, suspend some, like, disbelief where you're like, wait a second, this baby is in a wine cask and isn't making any noise at all? <laughs> this baby is being yeah. swung Although, around haphazardly in a basket and isn't making any noise at all? <laughs> isn't sliding out of the basket? No. I did appreciate that they used a
1: real baby, and it was obviously a real baby the whole time. Yeah. Like, that part was good. Yeah. But, um, I mean, the movie is is so absurd that, like, I didn't have a lot of factual problems with it, but that particular part gave me anxiety. Right. Yes.
0: Because you happen to know. (laughs) Yeah. You have to suspend a lot Uh, of disbelief in this. In this movie, I think.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, it works because it's just so obviously
0: a comedy and there's so many crazy things going on the whole time. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's so obviously, like, a spoof of, like, swashbuckling. Like, it has to have Basil Rothborn, you know, swinging a sword around. And there has to be a witch. And there has to be, like, you know, a hero swooping in. And it has to have a princess and, you know, the, the forest rebel forces that are... You know that make their way into infiltrating the castle.
1: Yeah, at first I thought it was just going to be like a straight parody of Robin Hood. Oh yeah, but it's it's not. I mean, there's some similarities, but it's not really the same story. Yeah.
0: What did you think about the osler? The who is the one who actually when when Jean sends Hawkins into the castle? He said she says you know you need to go to the castle and make contact with our man inside by whistling this medley- melody and Hawkins is like we already have a man inside why are we not like why haven't we already like broken the system and Jean says you'll realize why when you when you see him which were like, you know, who who is this guy? And he there's this case of mistaken identity. So he goes into the castle whistling the the like resistance melody, which like is not very covert. But he thinks that Ravenhurst is the guy inside, and not the ostler. And so he thinks that oh like you know Ravenhurst is is the resistance guy but it turns out like pretty quickly that the lowly servant is the resistance guy and the reason why he hasn't been able to make any inroads is because he's just a servant and he like it, he ends up Ravenhurst discovers like over the course of the movie that you know that Hawkins and Jean and Fergus, the servant, are all part of the Resistance and they're part in the castle. And they end up torturing and killing Fergus, the servant, which Jean just sort of, like, mentions (laughs) casually. (laughs) Which I was like, like, he basically protected you guys. I mean, I know this is a hard business, but, like, you can't just mention that casually.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, he definitely had... The worst job in the whole movie, which was, and also ended up dead and nobody cared and he got no credit for anything. Yeah, and got no credit. And how many times did they like send him on some useless errand and then be like, no, don't do that, do this? Yeah. Never mind. Never mind. Send the baby here. Send the baby there. People, like, stop sending the baby places. Like, this baby needs to sleep. It
0: needs a stable environment. Yeah. Just take the baby to the freaking abbey like you said that you were going to at the beginning of this movie. He doesn't yes. need to be here. Get him to somewhere safe. I
1: would also like to point out a medical fact, which is that birthmarks are not hereditary. <laughs> they are birthmarks. <laughs> I know. It is literally a birthmark. Right. Right.
0: Yeah, you don't, you, that's not, they're not like giraffes.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, that whole idea is ridiculous. That And even if that idea was not ridiculous, just showing that, like, he has a similar, he has that mark does not prove anything. Yeah. So, I'm just, I mean, again. Yeah, yeah, history of facts, science, Emily. So whatever. Some facts. <laughs> <laughs> because in the very beginning when they were like, he has the birthmark, he has the... And I was like, listen, people. I have birthmarks. No one else in my family has those birthmarks. Yeah. Is, that's There's no relationship. Right,
0: This is not how it works. <laughs> um, okay, so there's no science so you, and no historical fact in this movie. There's also a witch No, in but... It, I mean, so... <laughs> yeah. That's not what this movie's about. <laughs> no. This movie's about a resistance movement to overthrow... A murderous, tyrannical king who doesn't deserve to be ruling. Uh,
1: What do you think was going to happen once they got the baby back on the throne? Like, who was going to rule until he was a baby? Yeah, who's?
0: the... I mean, it seems like, oh, Hawkins maybe is going to because he's the hero, but that can't be right. It must be the Black Fox. Also, are they going to murder the king? Like, are they going to execute him for, for treason? And will the princess die? Unclear. Uh, unclear, Because life could not better
1: be. <laughs> In the end.
0: <laughs> this is a cycle of murders, but life could not better be.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh. Oh, beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature, beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher, what can I do? But give my heart to you. Is this a good time to
0: talk about costumes? Yes. Please can we talk about costumes. Can we say... Is there more to say about the, the calf prosthetics? Or do, should we talk about <laughs> the beautiful dresses that Angela Lansbury and Glynnis Johns get to wear?
1: It really annoyed me that they forced May Jean to wear all those, like, super revealing dresses when she needed to be doing, like, important work and move
0: around freely. But she was wearing... <laughs> She wore pants at the beginning, right? When she's the captain. Yes. And then she has to, like, she has to wear women's clothing because she has to go undercover. Which I love yes, that, like, I like her, her undercover clothes outfit. is a dress. <laughs> That's true.
1: <laughs> well, when, so, she was supposed to be, like, a wench mm-hmm. on the road. And that, for some reason, meant that she had to wear this very revealing outfit. And then when she got to the castle, they were like, well, we're gonna dress her up in this other very revealing outfit right. that is of higher caliber right so that i don't know that part just annoyed me yeah. but um in general
0: the costumes were really beautiful and colorful in this movie yeah well and it was fun to see them all wear i mean it was like sort of obvious that like the, none, none of what they were wearing was like historically accurate in any kind of way. It was just, like, a exaggerated version. Uh, like, someone's imagined version of, of, like, oh, what would people wear in the, f- you know, 15th century or whatever century this, this is supposed to be? It was totally made up.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. But I like Um, it. I did notice that some of made Jean's dresses were sort of hemmed to be shorter mm-hmm. in the front. Mm-hmm. So... And that's clearly not period accurate, but I thought they were at least trying to say, like, this person needs
0: to be active. Right. She needs to run. <laughs> she needs to take out the, t- the tyrants.
1: <laughs> and Danny Kaye's outfits were really colorful and beautiful, and I thought he looked great in them. And they definitely drew a lot of attention to him. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I like that they, like, helped f- really facilitate his... Transformation from this like entertainer in the forest to being like the ro- the royal royal fool. Sarah. Yeah,
1: and. It was interesting with his transformation, because at first I was like, oh, he acts like he's so nervous pretending to be the jester and doing this mission, but as soon as he had to be on, he was, like, amazing, and then I thought, oh, yeah, he was a carnival entertainer, so he's basically ideally trained to do this job.
0: Right. Which, like, I feel like Jean realized when she gave him this assignment that she was like, oh, of course Hawkins is perfect for this. This is a perfect situation. We have an entertainer who needs to impersonate another entertainer. It's perfect. She was wise. She
1: was. I mean, as we said, she orchestrated this entire overthrow of government. That's right.
0: Long live Maid Jean. (laughs) (laughs) She should rule until the
1: baby's old enough. Yes.
0: Let's imagine that that's what happened.
1: Yes. All right. I'm there. (laughs) That's, That's definitely the sequel. Okay.
0: Court Jester (laughs) 2. Me, Jean, on the throne. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery.
1: So did you think that there was a social justice message?
0: I mean, I appreciated watching this movie now when there is so much talk of political resistance. And, you know, here was a movie that was made... You know, in the mid-1950s, in a very different time, where, you know, like the idea of resistance was not as, like, it wasn't such a buzzword that people use all the time, or if they did, they used it in a, you know, and like, oh, this is, you know, we were all part of, like, the resistance during the war kind of thing. So it was interesting to watch it now and see the parallels of, like, today in 2018 who is the tyrant on the throne that has
1: <laughs> taken, <sighs> taken... I the, can't think of
0: anyone. ...taken over the presidency? <laughs> and, like, who is the... Like, who's the baby with the purple temper now? You know, who's the black box Who, like, is theoretically in charge of the resistance movement? And who's, who's made Jean today? And who is, like, act- the one actually, like, orchestrating maneuvers... And who's you know Hubert Hawkins, the one who like who's sort of hapless and is like believes in the cause, but like isn't like doesn't really know what he's doing, and but and then like at the end like takes credit. Like, is he just every white man? <laughs> like yeah, like a good I mean, good-hearted white man. <laughs> but so
1: like not in that way. But I did like that they were. People who are fighting against a tyrannical mm-hmm. government and you know doing everything they can to make the society better. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of just the premise of that movie.
0: It's not. I don't think this is a movie that cares a lot about societal issues, right? Because they also turned away the little people. Because so they're like, oh, this is not a movement for you. This is very exclusive.
1: Yeah, you're you're just more mouths to feed, and you can't do anything, right?
0: spoiler alert Um, they do do a lot in the end
1: (laughs) yeah they basically save everyone um yeah so i don't know i I would not say it is a social justice movie but it does have certain elements that are social justice yeah
0: i would say it's like relevant to the like conversation about social justice but it's not about social justice
1: yeah i think that's fair (laughs) Been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. Um, what about the Bechtel test?
0: I think it has these two like particularly one very strong female character and then these two other strong in their own way female characters. They don't actually speak to each other. I mean, one of them is the like assistant to the princess. So there's, like, a power dynamic there. And all they are talking about is how Griselda, the witch, has to make sure that, you know, all these things happen, like, in the princess's favor. Otherwise, the princess is going to have Griselda killed. So, like... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't think it passes the Bechdel test. Yeah, it's
1: interesting because it felt to me like it should pass. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't pass. No. I mean... Because I was like, oh, it has, like, several developed female characters, and it subverts gender roles in in a lot of ways, but...
0: Yeah, I think it does... But none of them talk to each other
1: (laughs) about anything except men. Yeah. Or or they just don't talk to each other at all. Period.
0: Right. I mean, yeah, I think in some ways it, like, complicates the idea of the... The Bechdel test in the way that I think, like, Nanachka does. The movie Nanachka, where there's, like, a woman in charge of making sure that, um, you know, the thing that's supposed to happen actually does happen. But it just, there's no woman for her to talk to. Which is, <laughs> like, isn't that always the yeah. case? There's only one female woman, and there's only one woman who is, you know, nominated for president by a major party. But, like, there are no other women for her to talk to. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, like, is that progress? I mean, it's basically, like,
1: (laughs) it's like tokenism, because it's like, oh, we have to have one female character who's developed to play the lead, but we don't need any others, because we're all really interested in the men. Right. Right. We can have as many men as possible. (laughs) We don't, sometimes we don't even need women, like in Treasure of the Sierra Madre.
0: (laughs) Just a set decoration.
1: Yeah, I mean, we could
0: have one walk
1: by. That's right. But that's it.
0: Yes. So, like, this movie doesn't not pass the Bechdel test in the same way that, see, The Treasure of Sierra Madre doesn't pass the Bechdel test. It's much better in other ways, but...
1: It is, and I, I did really appreciate the way that they made the lead character a sensitive man who is, like, in a nurturing role,
0: and that's what he's good at, and that still makes him the hero of the movie. Yeah. Right. And, like, for him, his role in the Resistance is to take care of a baby, which, like,
1: it's like,
0: oh, caring for children is a a legitimate way to take care of, or to be part of the Resistance. I guess if you're a man. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're a woman, no, it doesn't count. Right. Um, So, similarly, I think, in the same way as, you know, it brings up a lot of themes and questions about um, social justice, sort of similarly brings up... Themes and questions about gender, but it doesn't actually pass the Bechdel test. Yes. Um, So what rating would you give this? I love this movie, but I don't think that it's a very good movie overall. I mean, it is definitely a Danny Kaye vehicle and highlights his, you know, all of his amazing skills and talents, but there are a lot of, like, twists and turns in the plot, and, I mean, it's sort of meant to be that way. It doesn't try to not be a ridiculous movie. So I think it is very aware of what it is. And when it came out, it flopped. So I wouldn't give it a one. I wouldn't give it a one. I wouldn't (laughs) give it a five. It is... It's a movie that I have always watched as a, like, sort of escape from the, like, the movies that you have to really think about. So it's, like, entertaining in a way that is not horrible. So I would probably give it a three based largely on that... (laughs) nostalgia and that like sort of feel goodness about it what what rating would you give it
1: i think that's fair and uh, honestly like our ratings are totally subjective so like that's right. this movie is meaningful to you and you should give it whatever rating you want
0: that's right because um, we're our own bosses <laughs> <laughs>
1: I would give it a two, I think, because, I mean, as I said, I don't think it was particularly for me, but I did enjoy certain parts of it a lot, and I thought Danny Kaye was really good, um, and I liked the reverse gender dynamics in the two leads. Yeah. So, I mean, it's probably not something I would watch again as a complete movie, but I think I would revisit clips from it of some of the scenes that I liked. Well, and you can listen to it on Spotify. Yes. And I'll, I'll um, lend you my cassette tape. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so that I can learn about the vessel with the pestle. And the chalice from the palace. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hillary. what's our next movie?
0: I think our next movie is Stage Door.
1: Yeah, which was a... Uh, a listener request. Yeah.
0: I'm excited to watch it. Me too. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow the Screen Sirens on Twitter at the Screen Sirens,
1: And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.